Good morning again uh, to those on site and also to those uh, online. Uh, we are, as Colton said, continuing the Shalom Project. Uh, and we, uh, you know, it's in reference to our, our vision statement. And who can remember a vision statement? If you're online, you can type it in the chat, or if you're on site, you can shout it out. Okay, Craig, $5 gift card for Tim Hortons on us. Say it loud. Yes, okay, thanks. Let's give uh, Craig a hand. Thank you. Um, Shalom Breakers becoming Shalom Makers. And, uh, and so Shalom uh, is a word that uh, reflects for a directional relationship, being at peace. That's often the way it's translated in our scriptures is, is being at peace uh, with with God, with self, with others, uh, with the world. And so we've taken each of those relationships and doing a little bit of a mini-series on each one. Uh, and we're wrapping up the, the second part of that uh, Shalom project, which is the focus on our uh, identity, our relationship with, with self. So just a really quick recap. And again, if you missed a couple of weeks, you can go back online. You can rewatch them. Uh, but we've talked about what it means to be made in the image of God uh, and the, the scriptures are very clear in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 5, that when God created humanity, he created us unique and distinct from the rest of creation, uh, that we had a unique role in creation, and that he, he put us in authority uh, to, to actually take care of, uh, to, to govern, to, to garden originally uh, in the created world. Uh, we were created with the capacity to create. We were created with the capacity to think and to imagine uh, so as humans, we have uh, the ability to entertain ideas that aren't currently uh, in line with reality, uh, which has a huge implications on, uh, great implications on what we can do as we create the future and participate with God and what he's doing in the world. Uh, God never created the, the world to be a closed system, but it was an open system in which we get to participate with him and what the world is becoming. Um, that's part of what it means we create in God's image. That has a shadow side, though, as we entertain ideas we also have the capacity to entertain lies or ideas that aren't in alignment with truth or what, with what God wants. And so as we believe lies as human beings, uh, we actually create destruction and death. And so the enemy comes and his strategy is actually to convince us of things that are not true, that are not in alignment with what God wants to do. And as we believe those things, we create uh, destruction. Uh, and so God uh, speaks truth into this. He wants to redeem us from this. He wants to restore our capacity to be his image bearers uh, so that we can continue to co-create with him uh, and be a part of what he's doing uh, in the world. Uh, and part of the way that the enemy convinces us of lies, and we looked at this last week, was he appeals to our flesh, uh, which in the Greek, uh, the, the original language that your New Testament was written in, the word is sarks which is the disordered desires, the disordered desires of our flesh. Uh, so sometimes it's not even that we desire the wrong things, that we might desire the right things, but in the wrong order. Uh, and that there's a certain, uh, there's a deeper desires that God has put in us as human beings, and our deepest desires are not necessarily the same as our strongest desires. Our fleshly desires are not the same as necessarily what the Spirit is inviting us to participate uh, with Him in. Uh, and so last week, we kind of concluded with that thought that our strongest desires um, are not, are at odds with our deepest desires. And if we were to take a step back and reflect as human beings, what do we most deeply want? What kind of person do you most deeply want to be and be known for? And what type of world do you want to create? Often, that answer is at odds with what you feel strongest maybe in a given moment. And so it's tuning into our deepest desires, what God is inviting us to, what His Spirit is inviting us to, and beginning to live in alignment with Him. And that's, so that's where we pick up uh, this week. Uh, so again, shalom, four relationships, and we're focusing on uh, our identity uh, in, in terms of what does it mean to be at peace with myself, be at peace with who God created uh, me to be. And this series, uh, even though we're only doing this part for three weeks, it could be much longer than that. Uh, but this is, uh, this is a good start anyways. And so we're going to relook at Genesis chapter 3. And, uh, and this is kind of the beginning of the creation story. And I'm just going to read it, the account for you in Genesis 3. Uh, I'm going to read 1 to 11 here. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And it is amazing the human reaction at the very beginning of time and how little has changed since the beginning, that when Adam and Eve did something wrong, when they did what they knew they weren't supposed to do, when they gave in to their strongest desires instead of the deepest desires, uh, they hid. And so it says the eyes of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So that's the first example of hiding. Uh, and then it says uh, that they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. So, so two times here in the story, they tried to hide. They tried to hide their bodies themselves because they felt shame. Uh, and then they tried to hide from God. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, this, this emotion, this reaction of shame, and, and, and the role that it plays in our human development, uh, in how we understand ourselves, and when we do something we don't think we ought to do, how we often move to a place of shame, move to a place of wanting to hide, of wanting to isolate. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the strategy of the enemy. One of the strategies that the enemy does is to isolate us, to convince us of lies. And in our shame, when we don't do what we're supposed to do, we can actually isolate ourselves, which makes us more susceptible to believing lies. And you kind of see how that unfolds. Now, there's a difference between guilt and shame. And so what Adam and Eve would have felt originally was guilt, that they knew that they did something that wasn't right, that God told them not to do this thing, and then they went and did it anyways. Uh, and then their conscience kind of cues in and says, you know, I did that which... I wasn't supposed to do. Shortly after that, they shift from guilt to shame, and that's a significant shift. And guilt and shame are very, very different things. Uh, guilt is not bad, even though uh, in our culture, we think that guilt is bad. Uh, and there's only two types of people in the world that don't feel guilt. Saints, those people that don't do anything wrong ever, and sociopaths. Honestly, those are the two people that don't feel any type of guilt. Uh, and so it, it's actually helpful for us to distinguish between guilt and shame in a world that says, if you feel guilt, that's bad. No, that's not actually bad, but you can kind of draw the line. Last week we talked about the influence of Freud, Freud and his ideas on our culture, that, that anything that oppresses or represses desire is bad. And so if you feel guilt, it's because you're believing a certain narrative of things that you should and shouldn't do, and you should get rid of that, and then you could be totally free. And we, uh, we, we actually talked about why that, that isn't true. Uh, so we need to distinguish between guilt and shame. Guilt is about the what, and shame is about the who. Guilt says what I did was bad. And you can see just a few degrees from that. Shame says who I am is bad. Shame says I am bad. Guilt thinks to itself what I did was unloving, and I need to make it right. Shame thinks... I am unlovable, and there's no hope for me. Shame says our identity is bad, unlovable, irredeemable. So as a result, we start living out of that identity, out of that lie, and guess what? We create a world that reflects that belief system. Guilt is actually a good thing. The most emotionally healthy and mature people actually have a high sense of guilt when they do something that isn't right. Guilt to the soul is like pain is to the body. I remember I was, I was making coffee in the, the church kitchen there a few days back, and, I, and I, I was talking to Pastor Dave, and I backed 
my way into the hot water tap, and I got like a splash of hot water down the back of my shirt, uh, and I didn't know what it was uh, instantly. I didn't know, but I, I jumped off it because my whole body went into like the shock, and then it took me a few seconds to realize that uh, there was scolding hot water that was running down my back. Uh, but that sensation of pain is a valuable thing because if I wouldn't have felt that, I would have stayed in that moment and burnt the back of my neck and my back. Uh, and so pain is, even though it's, it's not enjoyable, it is actually integral to staying alive and experiencing full life. Guilt is the same way. Guilt actually alerts us to something's wrong, that something's broken. Uh, and, and given our definition of shalom, guilt actually tells us that we have participated in shalom-breaking in one direction or another. Guilt is the gentle hint that we need to repair something, and it's also a part of how we begin to mature and become aware of who we are and who we're becoming. And all parents know this, and I don't see too many young kids here in the first service, which is good, because I'm going to let out a little secret. The degree, and maybe this has just come because I'm a bad parent, but the degree to which we punish our kids is all dependent on how much remorse they show. Is that not true? I mean, if, if, if my kid does something wrong and, and they don't look like they care that they did something wrong, they get a severe punishment. But if my kid does something wrong and they're like crying and they're so remorseful, I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? That's okay. Uh, why? Because there, there's almost a level of maturity or manipulation uh, that you can see happening because they're recognizing guilt, they're feeling guilt, and now they're responding to it. It's when my kids aren't even aware of the fact that they did something wrong. That's what really, you know, ticks me off. Uh, so guilt is not a bad thing. Guilt is actually integral to, uh, to uh, being a healthy, mature person. And so the, the, the woman said to the serpent, uh, we may eat from the... the we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So right before, Adam and Eve make this choice to walk outside of God's alignment, God's intention. We have this moment of free choice. We have this moment of free choice. And we need to recognize that from this point on, that Adam and Eve, uh, their degrees of freedom are going to change from this point on, depending on what they choose. The freedom of what can be chosen from this point on is going to be forever impacted depending on this decision. Adam and Eve will become more free or less free depending on the choice that they're going to make. And the irony of it is that the enemy comes and says you're not completely free and tries to steal the freedom from them by disobeying God. And as we know, that choice will depend on which voice they listen to. Are they going to listen to God's voice in this moment? of how to live, or are they going to listen to the enemy's voice? Are they going to let the enemy appeal to their flesh, to their strong desire, or are they going to actually listen to the voice of God and pay attention to the deepest desires of their heart? Which voice they listen to will, depend, will, will determine the trajectory of their freedom and the limitations of their freedom. Now, freedom is an incredibly misunderstood, powerful word. We see it in the very beginning of the creation story that God gave us freedom, that God gave us choice. We look in the, the news right now, and there's all sorts of talk about freedom and what it means to be free. The world's definition of freedom and God's definition of freedom are at odds with one another. They are not the same thing. Now, I want to return to Galatians, where we spent significant time last week. In Galatians 5, Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, that's kind of like a cyclical statement. Like, what is that even saying? You know, I've often read that in the past. Like, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free? Uh, duh. Like, what does that even, what does that even mean? Uh, the freedom, the capacity to choose. It's the opposite of being enslaved. The capacity to choose, the capacity to actually bear Christ's image again, to bear God's image in the world, he has set us free to be fully human again. Uh, it's for freedom that God has set us free. Stand firm then in your freedom. Paul is, is speaking to those who profess to be Christians who have freedom. He's saying, stand firm in your freedom. Do not let yourselves be burdened again. Don't go back to being a slave. 
Now, these two words, freedom and slavery, have so much baggage with them. I want to look at them very briefly, one at a time. First, freedom. And I'm not sure there's any word in the Christian vocabulary that has been more misunderstood than this word. Philosophers parse out two different types of freedom. Uh, First, there's negative freedom and there's positive freedom. Negative freedom is freedom from. It's the removal of any and all constraint of our choices. If I could remove myself from any restraints, any constraints on the choices that I'm making, then I am truly free. Anything that that contains me, limits me, uh, that would be an example of an understanding of negative freedom. Positive freedom is freedom for. Not just permission to choose, but the power to choose that which is true, that which is good, that which is best, that's positive freedom. We, so, we see both levels of freedom in the, in the creation story. Uh, do you remember when Eve responded to the serpent? She said, uh, we may eat from any tree in the garden. That's a positive perspective of freedom. We may choose. We may actually live this way. There's freedom there. And then she says, uh, the negative side of freedom, she says, we may not eat from that one. So we may eat from this tree, we may not eat from that one. Positive freedom, negative freedom. The freedom for something that we're able to do, the freedom against something that limits what we can do. When we think of negative freedom, this this view of freedom actually has been, uh, there's a whole lot of energy behind this idea of freedom now. Uh, In our worldview, now that we're in a postmodern worldview, um, and I've talked about this quite a bit, but basically postmodernism, the rejection of any absolute truth, grand story, meta-narrative, uh, a, a, common, uh, a common point of orientation in terms of what is right and wrong and what is true. Uh, so po- postmodernism has shifted away from saying there is no absolute truth, there's no way of knowing anything. And as that has happened, the embracing of freedom uh, in, along the definition of negative freedom has been more and more popularized. In fact, it's, we only think of freedom really in that way now at all. Anything that limits my choice as an autonomous being, anything that restricts me, anything that says I can't do something, that is limiting my freedom. So if there's an external source, whether that's the Bible, whether that's my parents, uh, whether that's uh, you know, commitment to in my marriage, uh, whether it's... Uh, you know, anything that involves any level of restriction is actually seen in a negative light. Freedom in this take is the liberation to do whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. And, and so often when we talk about that, we can do whatever we want, we often follow it up with, we can do whatever we want as long as it doesn't, what? Hurt somebody. But even there, there's, there, there's a paradox, there's an irony, because even for us to agree on what is hurtful for somebody else means that we agree, at least on some level, on what is morally right and wrong. And as our world moves away from a general agreement of what is right and wrong and what is true and what isn't, uh, that idea of doing what I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it, it is actually unlivable. You can't actually live out that if there's no agreement of what is right and wrong. And so increasingly, we have this idea of freedom being anything that, that is, is keeping me from doing what I truly want, uh, and we have less and less an awareness of what is true, what is good, what is right, uh, what is beautiful. Now, when we read the word freedom in Scripture, often it's referring to this positive freedom. And this was Paul's idea of freedom, and this was Jesus' idea of freedom. This is different uh, theologians and philosophers throughout history. They, they even define freedom this way. They put more emphasis on the positive side of freedom. Freedom not just to choose, but, ch- but freedom to choose what is best. Freedom to choose what is good. For them, freedom, freedom means we need a kind of power or an ability outside of ourselves, beyond our strongest desires, to, pay, to, to choose that which is uh, best, to choose our deepest desires. And Paul referred to this, as we looked at last week, as walking in step with the Spirit. We actually choose what is deepest, what is best, what is right, because we're in tune with God's Spirit, with true reality. So free, that's the first word, freedom. The second word, slavery. This word has a whole bunch of baggage, uh, and we cringe when we, we read it, and rightfully so, uh, when we think of slavery in our world and racial discrimination, dehumanization, oppression, 
All of these things are horribly, horribly wrong, and they're against God's plan for us and our world. Now, some people use the Bible to justify slavery, uh, but I'll just, I'll just tell you right away that that is a complete mishandling and misunderstanding of the Bible. The Bible actually moves us away from slavery to this radical worldview where, where people of all races, tongues, uh, economic classes are actually together in the family of God. And so slavery, as we have experienced it in humanity, is, is terribly wrong. It doesn't stop, though, it doesn't stop Paul and other New Testament writers from using slavery uh, in multiple ways for us to understand uh, certain relationships. Second uh, Peter, Peter says that people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. So in, in Scripture, anything that controls you is, whether it's a slave owner, a tyrant leader, uh, a self-defeating behavior, an addiction, or maybe even, we could even take it as far as like our cell phones, our ability never to turn them off. Uh, anything that is dictating how you live uh, is, is considered to, to be slavery in, in the scriptural sense. Andrew Sullivan, in an article in the New York, New York Times, said, for most of the ancients, freedom was freedom from our natural desires and material needs. It rested on a mastery of these deep natural urges in favor of self-control, restraint, and education into virtue. They'd look at our freedom now and see the licentiousness, chaos, and slavery to desire. They'd predict misery, not happiness, to be the result. And the problem with our our understanding of authority is not that authority is bad, but that we've experienced the abuse of external authority, which makes us reluctant to actually trust in authority. We've experienced the abuse of external authority, and so it makes us reluctant to trust in authority. But if we reject authority, if we reject anything from outside of ourselves, our own strong flesh desires, we will find that we are not free at all, that we are increasingly enslaved. We are increasingly mastered by all sorts of desires. So what we're seeing here from a different perspective is that the decisions I make every day contribute to the person I become and the life I have. The decisions I make every single day contribute to the person I'm going to become and the life I'm going to have. Now this is where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, really confronts us in our culture. And for years... uh, people have talked quite a bit about Jesus being Savior, which is true, that Jesus saves. And we talk about salvation and being saved from sins, being saved from hell, being saved for life, being, you know, being saved for eternal life. We, we, use, we use this type of language. But the emphasis, you'll notice, is on salvation, not on lordship. The good news of Jesus is first and foremost the good news that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is in charge. Salvation is actually a byproduct of Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord and I'm in, and I, and I'm in the kingdom of Jesus, that means that I experience salvation, healing, wholeness in all, all sorts of ways. But it's because Jesus is Lord. Our understanding of salvation has changed as our culture's understanding of freedom has changed. So I want you to, to pay attention to this for a second. The, as, as we have focused more and more on negative freedom, that freedom is actually all about being saved from anything that restricts me, being saved from something, we have more and more focused on Jesus as Savior, Jesus saving us from something. But historically, when we understand freedom in the positive sense, that we are saved for something, unto something, for a purpose, we actually have emphasized throughout history the lordship of Jesus because Jesus is for something. He's in charge of something. There's a direction that we are headed. There's a direction that our world is headed. There's an invitation to a certain kind of life that God has for us. So when we think of freedom in the positive sense, 
we begin to see the importance of Jesus as Lord. Jesus just didn't come to save us from something, to free us from something. He came to save us for something. There's a certain type of life that he, in, he intended for us to live. We, we talked about Zoe life, like we, there's, there's a certain type of fulfilling, purposeful life that he created every human being to live. Eternity, we, we often think about salvation for eternity, but biblically, eternity is actually in the backdrop. Most of D- Jesus' teaching is actually about the here and now, the kingdom of God here and now, living life here and now, being saved for something here and now. And sometimes we've been duped into thinking that Jesus just came to save me so that when I die, I can go to heaven. And, and that idea actually robs us from the life of God that he has for us here and now. Jesus is Lord. This is why he was crucified. This is why the Jews hated him. This is why the Romans hated him. Not because he came to save people, but because he came to declare a certain type of kingdom that was in opposition to the kingdom of the world. And so if we think back to the garden story again, we're in this place of freedom, of choice, where Adam and Eve get to decide which kingdom they're going to choose to live in, which voice they're going to listen to. Will Jesus be Lord, or will I listen to the voice of the serpent? Will I allow something outside of my own desires to actually tell me how to live, or will I appeal to my inner desires and choose how I'll live myself? And so we see that they made the choice not to follow God's They had guilt that actually shifted to shame and they started to hide themselves. Uh, And what's interesting is in the story, at the end of that story, in Genesis 3, it says that God clothed them. That God came and made some uh, clothing out of animal skins and actually gave it to them to wear. It's It's a fascinating part of the story. That they felt guilt and then they, they hid because they started believing lies about themselves, that they were unlovable, that they needed to hide, that God was a certain way. And so they covered themselves, they hid from God, and God goes out looking for them. He goes out looking for them, and then it says that God even clothed them. God meets them in their shame. And in Galatians, Paul picks up on this imagery, and he says this, so in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ. Have clothed yourselves with Christ. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. The baptism that we we practice in the church is a declaration that Jesus is Lord. What Paul is saying is that when you declare with your lips, when you live your life in such a way that Jesus is Lord, you are actually clothed by Christ. That shame can no longer name you. That shame can no longer lie to you because you've actually embraced the truth about who God is and who you said you are. You've actually, you, you've actually given up in baptism the living for myself and saying that I am the authority in my own life and you're saying that God is the authority in my life. I no longer live from my strongest desires. I'm actually going to live in step with the Spirit out of my deepest desires to be all who God has called me to be. That's what we declare when we get baptized, that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul is saying that when we declare that Jesus is Lord, we've actually been clothed, we've been covered by Christ. We're no longer naked, we're no longer in shame, we no longer have to believe lies about who we are and who God is because we see and understand the truth. Jesus is Lord and that changes everything. And then Paul goes on in in, in Galatians chapter 6 and he says, he's talking about the freedom, uh, freedom and slavery, walking by the flesh or walking by the spirit. And then he says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. And so we see this idea again that we've talked about, the deceitful, deceitful ideas that the enemy brings, these lies, when we believe them, when he plays to the disordered desires of our heart and we actually believe them and live them out, they will reap destruction and death. And many people think that eternal life refers to the quantity of life after death, but for the New Testament writers, it also meant the quality of life for the here and now. And this quality of life grows in scope over a lifetime of following him, and then it continues into eternity. 
So Paul is tapping into this whole idea of sowing and reaping. And it's been well documented, even outside of scriptures in neuroscience, that the more you think and act in a certain way, the easier it is to think and act in that same way. The more I think and act in a certain way, the more it reinforces that same thinking and action in my future life. I've used this image before, but uh, when I, at our old place, when we used to live in Cranston, we lived on one of these streets that never got uh, snow removal done, ever. Any of you guys live on a street like that? Never happens. So, so frustrating. You know, we were, we were peasants living in the, uh, we weren't living in the nice area, I guess. Uh, and so we were forgotten about. And so the, the snow would just pile up and, and nobody had garages on our streets. And so everybody parked on the streets. And so there's basically one lane of traffic that you were allowed to drive in, right? And, and the, never got, the snow never got removed. Uh, and so this, this snowing, melting, freezing cycle uh, that Calgary goes through was just utter chaos. Because what would happen is over time, people would ride the, the same ruts over and over and over again, right? And I can remember, uh, this is no word of a lie, I can remember, uh, and we lived on the circular block, uh, and I can remember taking my hands off the steering wheel pushing the gas pedal, and my car would just go around the block perfectly. You know, the, the ruts were so enforced, and they'd been frozen that way, uh, that, that, that that's where the car would go. It didn't even have to control it. They didn't have to do anything. That's just what the car would do. Uh, and it, it became tragic when another vehicle was coming the other way, and you had to, both were trying to get out of their ruts, and, and they couldn't quite make it. Um, so it, to me, it's a powerful image that this is actually what happens uh, according to neuroscience, in the way that we behave, in the reward system of the brain, uh, the way that we, the choices that we make and how that's reinforced by how we feel, and we go through that same process over and over and over again. The more you repeat the same process, the harder it is to break the self-perpetuating cycle. Through repetition, our thoughts and our actions uh, become a habit. They create ruts in our brains. And over time, those habits actually form a certain character within us. Many of us in these destructive habits and choices have actually had collisions with other human beings and other vehicles because we haven't actually been able to get out of the ruts. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you, you've, you've behaved a certain way your whole life and you know that it's destructive, but it's so enforced that you feel like you're not even in control anymore. And even if you took your hands off the steering wheel, the vehicle would still keep going in the same direction. And you may come across pedestrians other vehicles, people in your family, in your workplace, and you're colliding with them because you actually have no power to change course. This is what happens when we make the same choices over and over and over again. Uh, There's actually a miracle in this as well, though, because God created us in such a way, uh, in the positive sense, okay, let's, let's move from the negative to the positive, that if we live in step with the Spirit, over time, what will be reinforced for us is, is, is that deeper life that we all long for. It'll become harder and harder to make destructive choices when we make the choices that are pleasing to God. Those things also get reinforced in our behavior. And so the choices that we make actually determines the path that our life eventually takes. The choices that we make over time, actually limit our freedom over time. We become more increasingly the people we are already becoming. So the question is, are we being formed or are we being deformed? We talked about the difference between humanity and animals last week. Are we becoming more fully who God created us to be? Are we being formed into his likeness or are we being deformed down to our basic animal instincts and desires? Are we becoming more human or more animal? Are we being remade into the image of God? The cycle of spiritual formation or spiritual deformation begins to feed off its own energy and it either spirals out of control or we actually spiral more into Christ-likeness. The things we do over time do something to us. The choices we make begin to make us. This is, this is just on a neuroscience uh, scientific brain level. But this concept of sowing and reaping uh, 
has been well documented even outside of the world of science. Uh, Dr. Eric Fromm, who lived through both world wars, had lost his Jewish faith because of the traumatic experience that he had with Nazism. He would research Nazism for years after that experience, and he came to the conclusion that people are not, that nobody starts out purely evil. He said that people become evil slowly over time through a long series of choices. Uh, and I have this quote. I'm going to, it's a bit of a lengthy one, but it's worth us taking a look at. He said, the longer we continue to make the wrong decisions, the more our heart hardens. The more often we make the right decision, the more our heart softens or better perhaps becomes alive. Each step in life will increase my self-confidence, my integrity, my courage, my conviction. Also increases my capacity to choose the desirable alternative until eventually it becomes more difficult for me to choose the undesirable rather than the desirable action. On the other hand, each act of surrender and cowardice weakens me, opens the path for for more acts of surrender, and eventually freedom is lost. Between the extreme when I can no longer do a wrong act and the extreme when I have lost my freedom to right action, there are innumerable degrees of freedom of choice. Most people fail in the art of living not because they are inherently bad or so without will that they cannot lead a better life. They fail because they do not wake up and see when they stand at a fork in the road and have to decide. So what he's saying is the people we become, we're becoming with everyday little choices that we often don't give very much thought. But those little choices add up to a big character, a big personality, a big... uh, understanding of your identity over time. We make our decisions and then they make us. In the beginning, we have a choice, but eventually we have a character. And our, self, our level of self-determining freedom does not stay the same over a lifetime. It goes up or down depending on the choices that we make. The choices that you made in your initial freedom are not the choices that you feel like you can make now. And this was a significant idea of C.S. Lewis, and he wrote about this in a lot of different places. Um, But here, one more quote uh, from C.S. Lewis. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning to the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. C.S. Lewis argues uh, in in other books that he's written is that uh, hell is the experience, heaven or hell is the experience of humanity when they are more solidly formed into who they've been coming through, becoming throughout their lives. That people that don't choose Christ on earth would never choose Christ in eternity. That we become more and more formed from that place of freedom and choice into the people that we have chosen to become. Even before C.S. Lewis and Dr. Fromm, uh, there was uh, the scriptures which spoke about this. Even before neuroscience, In Proverbs, it says, the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithfulness are trapped by their evil desires. So a few thousand years ago, we see this idea already being observed and acknowledged in our scriptures that when you choose righteousness, your righteousness delivers you. Not saying that we can deliver ourselves, but but what what, what they're recognizing is that those right choices actually lead to greater degrees of freedom. Those unfaithful choices, when we, when, we, when we choose according to our flesh, actually we get trapped, we get enslaved by our evil desires. Our freedom expands or shrinks with each decision we make. This is why the older you get, the harder it is to imagine change. Uh, that's why we say, you know, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. How many people have ever heard a young person say that? Young people don't say that. Put up your hand if you've ever said that. Hey, look around. It's only old people putting up their hands. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Why? Because young people tend to think that human nature is more pliable, it's less fixed, that you can, you can actually be a part of who you're becoming, which is true. That is true when you're younger. But it becomes less and less true as you get older. When you're in your 20s, you don't say things like that. You have a nagging sense of, 
who am I going to become? You know, I'm turning 40 this year. And I've moved from thinking, who am I going to become to, I guess this is who I am. And and you think, oh, I'm never going to get there. And I promise you, if if you're under 30, that feeling of who am I going to become actually starts to go away. And and maybe that sounds sad in some sense, but it's just true because all the choices that you've been making are beginning, beginning to form the person and the character that you're becoming. So you're becoming who you are going to continue to be. Let's go back to Genesis 3. We've talked about the devil's strategies, how he plants lies, how he plants lies that appeal to our sinful nature, our flesh, our disordered desires, and so we're more likely to believe those lies. But when we choose those lies, they create destruction in our, in our lives and in others' lives. And so we've talked about that quite at length in the last uh, few weeks, but we haven't yet really talked about God's response. And so I alluded to it earlier that God's response to Genesis 3 is that he goes out, he pursues them, he finds them, he clothes them, uh, he responds to their shame, not running from them, not hiding from them, even though they were hiding from him, he pursued them and clothed them. He covered their shame. Uh, and the, the questions that God actually brings to Adam and Eve before that moment where he clothes them, I think are so, so significant. They're so significant. We've talked about the lies and the questions that, the enemy planted. We thought about, we've talked about the accusations that Adam and Eve had even in the midst of it. Uh, but let's take a look at how God responds in those questions. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to actually do something a little bit different as we, as we move towards the end of the service this morning. Uh, and I want you to rethink about these questions as if God was asking them to you. So we're not just thinking about what God said to Adam and Eve. I believe that these are questions that God actually comes to all of us in in the process of our lives in the scope of our lives, on our journey of becoming certain types of people, he interrupts us, he pursues us. He actually brings us an invitation to change. So as much as we think you can't teach an old dog new tricks, uh, God's gospel is one of interrupting you. No matter if you're 90 or if you're 10, uh, there is a new found life, new degree of freedom in his kingdom that he has for you, but we have to be willing to be interrupted. And so God comes into the story, he interrupts the story with these three questions. The first question, he says, where are you? Adam and Eve, where are you? This first question is actually an invitation to self-awareness, an invitation to to actually pay attention, an invitation to wake up. Some of us have been, we've been, we've just been coasting through life. Maybe you almost feel like you're asleep at the wheel or you don't even have to hold on the wheel and the the vehicle's just going and God kind of interrupts us and he says, where are you? And perhaps you have something to to write on here for a moment or you have a device on your phone that you can take some notes. I'm going to actually invite you to, to respond uh, by writing down how you would answer these questions that God is asking you right now. So it's okay, pull out your phone if you have one. Uh, if you don't have a device to, or a way to write something down, uh, you can just reflect and pray in your, your heart and your mind. But God interrupts our stories the way he's interrupting our story this morning, and he says, he asks, where are you? God is asking us in the midst of our journey, in the midst of our Maybe you're in the middle of crisis. Maybe you just feel like you're punching the clock. He's calling us to now pay attention to our lives. Are you hiding? Maybe you're wondering where God is. St. John talks about the dark night of the soul and he makes the interesting observation that Uh, When the lights go out in your life, it's often when God becomes most visible. So maybe you feel like you're in a dark place, but this might be a moment where you're more open to who God is and what he's saying than maybe at another point in your life. So God is searching for you. So he's asking, where are you? Are you hiding? Are you avoiding? He's calling you to pay attention. What's physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally 
Where, where are you? Is there hurts? Are there pains? Are there disappointments? Is there grief? Is there anger? Is there bitterness? Where are you hiding? God interrupts our story, calls us to start to pay attention to where we are and what's going on in our lives, in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts. And then he shows up with the second question, and he asks us, who told you? If God's where are you is an invitation to our self-awareness, God's who told you is an invitation to attend to your own story and the voices that you're listening to. Each of us has a story. Each of us has lived the story, a narrative from birth to where we are at our point in our life, and there's different voices that have influenced us. All of the voices that you've had throughout your life echo inside of you. Voices from parents, from teachers, from mentors, from siblings, from friends. Some of those voices were helpful. Some of them weren't. We don't take time often to remember our stories and rehearse our stories and the voices that we've listened to. In fact, Israel, throughout their history, God, one of the the commandments that he told them the most is to remember. Remember. Rehearse your story. Remember where you've been. Remember what's happened. Remember uh, what I told you. So this question, who told you, it prompts reflection. Whose voice have you been listening to? Is there a Is there a cultural lie that you've been believing? Is there a parent or an authority figure that you gave a lot of weight to in your life and what they thought and what they said and it's it's actually been destructive? Someone who didn't think you were good enough, strong enough, fast enough, smart enough, loving enough, good enough the question the serpent asked when he showed up was did God really tell you this and so he tried to get them to doubt themselves and to doubt God and are there voices that you've listened to that have made you doubt yourself or doubt who God is who told you which voice are you listening to God moves to the third question and he asks have you eaten from the tree have you eaten from the tree I told you not to eat from and this uh, this question is not punitive it's uh, he's helping us bring bring ourselves to a level of self-awareness again another way of asking this question of where have you taken your hunger You have desires. I know you have desires. I put them in you, remember? But did you follow a disordered desire? Did you actually pursue a shortcut? Did you believe a voice that said, hey, this is the way to happiness and freedom, and you find yourself not in happiness and freedom? What have you done? What have you eaten? Where have you taken your hunger? I was with you. You were with me. I satisfied everything. What could you possibly have wanted that I didn't have for you? Now we're getting into the area of confession and repentance and um, acknowledging where we went off course. And this is uncomfortable, and our world encourages us not to do this, but this is actually... uh, Repentance means the changing of our minds. This is actually the point where change starts to happen is where we acknowledge to God, hey God, I actually, I took my hunger here. Where have you taken your hunger? Can you acknowledge it before God? He's not on a fact-finding mission to punish you. He's actually on a fact-finding mission to bring you back to relationship and truth, to 
greater degrees of freedom. There's something about these three questions that make me think that God actually wants to show up, meet with us, interrupt our story, no matter how far gone we think our story is. Shame tells us to go out on our own, to hide, to be alone, but God's questions tell us to come closer. If we respond to these questions of where we have, uh, where we've gone, where we've taken our comfort, where, where we're hiding, what voice we're listening to, the next question that God asks all of us, and we, re- we referred to it last week, is what do you want? What do you want? Who do you want to become? Do you want to become who I created you to become? If the answer is yes, then allow me to clothe you. Allow me to be the Lord of your life. Leave the lies of autonomy. Leave the lies that say, follow your strongest desires will find you freedom. Believe the truth that I created you with a plan and a purpose and an identity. What do you want? Who do you want to become? I'm going to invite you to stand with me. These these four questions, you know, it might be hard to kind of dive into the depths of those in a few minutes on a Sunday, um, but they're not difficult. They're right there in their Genesis 3 story. Uh, or you can take a screenshot with your phone. Uh, but I would encourage you to take these questions before the Lord through this week, uh, that you would let the Lord find you wherever you are in your story, that you would pay attention to where you are, to the lies that you believe that you've listened to and where you've taken your desires and your hungers, and that you would return and actually respond to Jesus in the way that he invites us to respond to him, and that is first by making him Lord. Again, our, our, our world says any outside authority that restricts your life is bad. But the Bible actually tells us a different story. It's saying, well, there is a pure authority out there. There is a, your creator, your father, and if you actually give your life over to him, It's actually the most life-giving, freeing thing you'll ever do. So, Father, we thank you that you search for us, that you don't leave us hiding or in shame, but you pursue us, you call out to us, you speak to us. And I pray for those on site and online, Lord, that they would hear your voice calling, looking for us. Where are you? Which voice have you listened to? Where have you taken your hunger? Lord, would your spirit bring a level of self-awareness and recognizing that the life you want for us and the life we truly want deep down are the exact same thing. So we submit to your lordship. We submit to your authority in our lives. Lord, yes, we thank you that you save us, but we also thank you that you call us to live a certain way to make certain decisions, to choose a certain path. Lord, for those in this room that are struggling because they're not sure if, um, if the path that they've chosen can actually be rerouted, uh, we thank you that you are, uh, you are more powerful than whatever story that they've lived. You're more powerful than whatever voice they've listened to. Lord, that you are in the business of making all things new. And so I pray that you would raise up just a spirit and an expectation of hope in our midst, Lord, that we would believe that through your spirit, God, that you can make us new, that you can redeem us, Lord, that we may once again reflect your image to the world around. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, pray. taking your hunger and 
What do you want? Who do you want to become? Uh, I believe God is asking us those questions all the time. Uh, Sometimes we become more aware that he's speaking to us. And this might be one of those moments where um, you're finding clarity as you reflect on your life, on your own story, uh, and the invitation that God has for you and who you're becoming. Uh, I would encourage you in these moments to be courageous. Uh, And I know it's risky. Um, You know, we just sang a song that talks about not being scared of my weaknesses. Uh, Why? Because when we're weak, then we're strong. When we're weak, when we're vulnerable, we actually become more open to the Spirit working and correcting and guiding. Uh, when we're strong, we're given to pride and to, to self-determination and digging in our heels. And I would encourage you to embrace your weakness. I would encourage you to embrace your story. Uh, and I would invite you to have courage to not uh, isolate yourself and to reach out uh, in the context of community. Uh, there's a reason why the church throughout history has practiced repentance in the context of community. Why? Because it's easy to lie to yourself and you know, pray in your head. Uh, God actually becomes, in some sense, more tangible in the body of Christ as we start to repent and confess and share with one another. And so at the end of service, we always have prayer teams available. That might be one opportunity for you to actually courageously step out and be an active agent in your story and who you're becoming and saying, hey, I don't want to do this in isolation. Uh, This is what I feel like the Spirit's stirring in my heart. Uh, Would you pray for me? Uh, Perhaps, as I mentioned last week, that there's there's a longer ramp. You know, the the more those ruts have actually been created in our lives, often the longer longer it takes to to actually reorganize our lives, um, to melt down those ruts. Uh, and we have more longer-term resources available. Uh, I would invite you to reach out to uh, info at sunwestchurch.com, and we can help connect you with a therapist or a counselors if that would be helpful. Uh, we have an inner healing ministry uh, that, that dives more deeply into this type of reflection, questioning, and becoming aware of what God's Spirit is inviting you to. Uh, and we would love to make an appointment with you to do that. You can just in, email prayer at sunwestchurch.com. Uh, and we have a small group that we run each semester called Changes That Heal. Uh, that actually helps walk through in the context of community and accountability, um, you know, this desire to actually live uh, a more free life uh, and to be aware of the things that have hindered us in our own stories. Uh, So I'd encourage you to be courageous, uh, to step out, uh, to respond to God's invitation in your story. Uh, Let me bless you and pray for you now, and then I'll let you go. Lord, thank you for, uh, again, that you pursue us. I pray for courage. Um, Lord, we know that if we, um, yeah, if we don't respond to these moments when your spirit stirs us, we often miss these invitations into the full eternal life in your kingdom that you are talking about in your word. And there's windows in our lives, Lord, where you, um, like Adam and Eve, Lord, that you come, that you, we have an encounter with you and, and you give us the choice to respond. And so, Lord, I pray for courage to respond. Uh, I pray, Lord, that we would take seriously all of the little choices that we make that either honor you as Lord or, uh, or actually put ourselves in your place. I pray, God, that we would choose you as Lord in our identity, in our actions, in the way that we speak, in the way that we treat others, in the way that we talk to ourselves. Lord, may we be aware of where we are, where we're hiding. May we come out of that hiding place into the light. Lord, may we be aware of the voices that we listen to that are forming us that aren't aren't your voice. May we create time and space so that we can actually hear your voice and know your voice and live by your voice. Lord, may we be aware of the places we take our hunger. We thank you for the desires that you've given us, but we recognize that we often pursue the fulfillment of those desires in the wrong way. So, Lord, we pray that we would experience the rich and satisfying life that is found in communion with you and walking in step with your spirit, and that we would live from that place of fulfillment, of joy, of contentment, because those things are ours as children of God. So may we live in that reality. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week, and uh, best of luck getting out of here.